Ladies and gentlemen, all the ships at sea, it is Rich Buckland, Bill Mesnick, Bill Mesnick, Rich Buckland, the splendid Bohemians. We are back again. Yes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, look, these guys were kind of old. Anything could have happened. <laughs> they disappeared. They, dis- they disappeared. They fell off the radar. They were indicted. They were accused of something that who, who the hell knows in this. In always this, possible. Always possible in this atmosphere. But here we are, Mez. We are back again. And what we prove by returning is that we just don't send anything out there. We take care, consideration, in what we give you, the listener. Absolutely, absolutely, because we've been we've been waylaid by busy family stuff and illness and and all this, but but we you can't keep us down. No, we're 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 dogged, we're intrepid, and we're here to provide some, hopefully, some uh, divertissement. I like I like that mess. I I like that very much. We're we're just people. We're just people, and we're trying to express ourselves and share with you, with you, the listener, some really really interesting and some very cool subject matter. And we are going in an interesting direction today, uh, if I do say so myself. We're going to visit with some of the hierarchy of fifties and sixties rock and roll who may be remembered, who may not be remembered, but they kind of all share these cautionary tales of rock and roll life in, in later years. And uh, they're fascinating. Yeah, the, the bitch goddess uh, show business uh, has done has done its thing, but uh, they, are they like us, are intrepid. Absolutely, absolutely. And once you hear who we're going to be discussing today, You'll be able to you'll be able to check out some YouTube videos that are out there and understand further what these cats are up to today and what they were up to fifty plus years ago. So we are going to have an interesting lineup. Dion, the great rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee, Dion. Mr. J. Black of J. and the Americans and. Except no substitutes, there is only one lead singer of Jay and the Americans, that is Jay Black, and the intrepid, speak of intrepid, Mr. Bobby Rydell keeps on ticking and ticking and ticking. Fascinating cat. And uh, boy, this is, uh, this is a triangle of, uh, of, of musical delight. Where would you like to begin? Come. start since I think where this all where this all was um, engendered in your mind was the story of Jay Black yes born David Blatt uh, in 1938 you thought he was Italian and I proved to you that he was a Jew you proved it um, you proved it he, who's the Jew yes he, he and his brother uh, you know are a comedy team 
the, the as you say, he does more stand up than singing these days. Yes. So why don't you why don't you uh, set the table for us? Well, Jay Black has always been an interesting performer for me because of the nature of this of this voice. He now bills himself as Jay Black, the voice, pretty much because he can no longer utilize uh, Jay and the Americans for reasons that we'll we'll get into here. But um, what's fascinating about Jay is this vocal technique that utilizes some of these really, truly remarkable... uh, um, It's almost operatic. I was just going to say operatic, uh, uh, these operatic adjustments that he utilizes. And uh, one of the songs that I think is is most remembered is Caramia uh, for, for for its tone, and for its resounding sound. Uh, but Jay, Big voice, really big. Gigantic voice that was holding up as um, un- until late. Now, Jay's closing in on 80 years of age. And yeah, born in 1938. 1938. And these guys started out in Brooklyn and uh, in Borough Park. And uh, he speaks fluent Yiddish, Mez. Yeah, speaks fluent Yiddish, and you've you've seen him in concert, have you? Not? I've seen Jay Black in concert, and Jay is Jay is a remarkable entertainer. He's a remarkable entertainer. Now we are talking about a gentleman who, with the original group, the Americans, he replaced the original lead singer Jay Trainer, and mm. right after their first hit titled "She Cried." And then right. you've got oh, you've got hits like "Only in America," "Come a Little Bit Closer." Uh, there, those are all Jay Black. These are Jay Black. Um, she cried. Is there? So only... why did Jay Trainer leave the group? There, there have been there have been questions regarding that. Some say that there was some illness. Some say that there were some problems uh, within the band. It could be a number of factors, but. Where we are is Jay getting Jay having gotten the call, and now his voice uh, is marked on all of these all of these fabulous hits. Uh, Some enchanted evening, you may see a stranger. earliest Jay Black in person memory goes back to the Catskills, the Catskill Mountains, New York, where all Jewish parents took their Jewish children for vacations. 
And where right. hotels like Kutcher's, Grossinger's, the Concord, they presented, uh, beginning in the 70s, the early 70s, this entertainment for the kids, as Ed Sullivan would, would say. And I remember seeing The Left Bank and Jay and the Americans. At, at, at Kutcher's? At Kutcher's. Where I would the Left Bank. The wow. Left Bank. And what was interesting about that as well, it was a hotel where I would later perform with the Checkmates LTD. Oh. So that was that was just a couple of years later. So my recollection of them then. What was the stage like? Very big stage, almost you know, kind of like those Vegas rooms. Mm-hmm. Very big. Um, they were showrooms, and they were designed big room with, where they would eat and drink, right? Like a dinner theater or a club kind of thing. Yes. There were tables. Yes, there were tables. And then you would have a second level where you had other tables. Um, the, the same policies for Las Vegas were utilized for the Catskills. If you knew the maitre d' or you could tip the maitre d' enough, you'd get a better seat. Mm, uh, get a table up front. Get a table up front. But these were definitely showrooms designed to be the highlight of your stay, that of course, and the shenanigans that would go on poolside. Yeah, so it strikes me odd that um, uh, the Left Bank, which I I assume was pretty sedate, uh, Baroque rock, you know how they did in that room. Well, the the image we have of the Left Bank is Walkaway Renee, Pretty Ballerina. Those are the two yeah, hits right. that we recall and. There is this classical tint to what they do. But, of course, you're not going to have strings, certainly not playing in the Catskills. And so what you, what you have is a five-piece band who pretty well learned how to create an atmosphere with organ. They could work the crowd. Work the crowd. And they, they, were, they were seasoned just enough to be able to do some rock covers like a couple of Chuck Berry songs that would enable the audience to start tapping their feet. Which is now, in a performer, excuse me, but a performer like uh, <clears throat> Jay Black, who you say is a pretty funny stand-up comic, he and you know, with the Yiddish and everything, he must have gone over really well in that crowd. He went over remarkably well, and it was the first hint that the potential, the idea of of Jay Black as a solo artist had to be very close by. And yeah. it, it always, he he could cover the bases that Vegas and Catskill comics have to work their lives to be able to cover. This intrinsic sense of humor and comfortability in front of an audience, that does not come easy. But he worked it gradually, and I can recall that because he would have the band behind him, he would make a he would he would create just enough comedic space between songs to keep it interesting. Later on in '85, when I would when I saw him at the Club Benet in New Jersey, it was pretty well half stand up and half singing, although his pipes were were still remarkably dynamic. Yeah, um, now it's 
pretty much all stand-up, right? Well, he doesn't have much of a choice due to the fact that he has encountered some vocal issues. And at the beginning of this year, he performed uh, in Atlantic City at the Mohegan Sun on a John Bowser Bowsman promotion. And his voice was gone. His voice was literally gone. I think I shared that video with you. Um, Yeah, now did he refer to the fact did he apologize? Did he, or did he, uh, you know, cop to the fact that he wasn't the voice anymore? Absolutely, absolutely. He apologized, but he, but as every entertainer will do, uh, this is not boxing. If you're feeling hurt, it's it's you can bail. Most entertainers will not bail. If you're a, oh no, the show must go on. If, and, and most boxers, most pros are not going to bail either. But here you are facing what must seem, you know, decades and decades of, of experience. And now you're standing there without what is considered your main ammunition. And you don't have anything left in this tank that has taken you all these miles. Um, but the humor... The humor is still present, and the humor is still is still prevalent. Well, you know, the guys, we got to make a buck, and you know, you you go you you go on muscle memory. Well, especially after his 2006 experience, uh, where he he has he had a half a million dollar debt in back taxes. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's sort of the. You know, in all three of these performers that we're talking about today, they've all faced their kind of, um, you know, cavalry, right? So um, they had to they, they they had to come to a reckoning. Well, this reckoning was something that that I guess anyone with any problem or addiction puts off facing for as long as they possibly can. And his was gambling. And his was gambling. Um, the IRS, they're going to collect their money one way or the other. And what they wanted to do was uh, have him sell the rights to perform as Jay Black. They wanted the trademark Jay and the Americans. And they got it. The government... So he was, um, up till that day, he was not still with the group. He was performing solo as Jay Black. He he would he would perform as Jay and the Americans using Jane Americans. other Americans, correct? Right. And so then this other group who call themselves the Americans, they got another Jay and called themselves Jay and the Americans, and they bought the name to help bail him out of the bankruptcy. They purchased to help bail him out of the bankruptcy. As a deal, as part of the deal, he can still use his name, Jay Black, but he can no longer use Jay Black and the Americans. So what he has done is he's taken a he's taken a page from the Sinatra playbook, and he bills himself as Jay Black, the voice. And the third Jay is named John J. Reneke or something? Yes, Reneke. Reneke. And Reneke. the problem I have with all this, but... You know, there's no business like show business. You've known these people since your childhood, and now you're in court satisfying an IRS debt that means 
that your friend of 60 years will no, 60 years plus can no longer function as an artist in the profession that feeds he and his family. So I don't mm-hmm. understand the thinking that goes into that kind of assassination. I would imagine there would have been other ways to satisfy this debt wherever, where there could have been some inclusion where he wouldn't be erased from the idea for people that don't know any better. Well, the business of America is business, as someone said, and uh, he got the business, you know? Yeah, he got the business. He got the business, and we got a businessman, uh, so-called, in the White House. So let's not get into that, but, you know, I mean, this is uh, this is how America functions. Money money greases the wheel. So he needed money, and he, ha- he had to acquiesce well, what to the say- giving up of his identity absolutely and in a way and we won't go into depth but what you just identified is how america has now identified we have chosen to eclipse our identity in order to satisfy our monetary and presumed moral needs so Mm -hmm. what jay has experienced here is the big drowning at the hands of this system that will literally take away everything that you have earned Everything that you've earned as far as your capacity to identify as a human being, as an artist in this world. and So that, many musical artists uh, have suffered uh, at the hands of uh, greedy uh, record companies and managers. And, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme, and some stories are, are sadder than others, such as Jackie Wilson, uh, for Jackie Wilson to not have had a headstone, a gravestone, for years and years, and to have died in the kind of poverty that he died in, uh, and for his, for the owner of his label to have died in jail, it seems it it seems as if all of this is unnecessary. But we do live in a world that is consumed by many different types of greed. You better stop yelling me around If you don't stop yelling I'm gonna put you down Can't take it much longer. My heart's getting weak. It's not getting any stronger. You keep me so upset. My head's in a whirl. But if you wanna be my girl, you'd better stop. Yeah, it's often the artist that uh, profits the least. And this is pretty much the cautionary tale 
that we try to that that we're trying to put on display here. Um, well, let's let's segue to one of our other uh, luminaries. Um, let's go to Bobby Rydell. Volare, oh, Whoa. oh. wild one, wild one, and of course we all go to a swing in school. And I always wondered what school is he going to. <laughs> that was that. That I I loved that record for some reason because it made school sound like this this utopia that we wouldn't want to leave, but uh, it was far from it. Mr. Bobby Rydell, interesting once again. Philadelphia, Philadelphia son. Philadelphia son, and um, coming along during this tide of what were known as the teen idols. And the teen idols functioned pretty much as cats like Fabian, Fabian Forte, Tommy Sands, Frankie Avalon. They were looking for that face and the voice in in cases where professionalism did reign. They were looking for the voice that accompanied that face. And uh, the, the movie The Idol Maker, fantastic movie, which kind of plays that out dramatically. What was the uh, idol maker's real name? Oh, great the guy who, cra who crafted all of these. Uh... Great question. I'm going to have to look this up. But the but it was portrayed by by the late great Ray Sharkey. Ray Sharkey was brilliant. That was his, uh, I think, his best performance. But but the man that he portrayed, um, he was the man who sort of crafted all of these images i thought that he was a composite of three or four different promoters particularly he may have been i thought he know, was one guy though i thought he was one guy. well it was pretty much based on the promoter who who took control of fabian fortes uh, yes because his story is probably the most bizarre uh, this is this is a, a young man who was uh a teenage idle marketability all the way down the line but without a voice to be found with <laughs> no voice to be found and he got pretty far without that well if he, he's still out there doing it and he's still performing with his with his philadelphia friend bobby rydell bobby rydell so why why do we put bobby rydell in this triumvirate here with with Jay Black, Dion DeMucci, and Bobby Rydell. Why Bobby? Why? What's special about Bobby Rydell? Bobby Rydell had a capacity to not just sing, but he had a he had a very casual air about him that allowed him to be able to do the screen, small and large as well. Yeah, he made a lot of um, the television appearances. He made TV appearances, working with Dick Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke Show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he was very, very TV and and movie friendly because of this ease that he that he danced around in. And when he had an opportunity to put this full roster of talent on display in Bye Bye Birdie in 1963, he didn't disappoint. So he had already accomplished something that a lot of those young, quote, teen idols were unable to accomplish, which was making... So uh, the idol maker was Bob Marcucci. Bob Marcucci. 
Bob Marcucci. Bob Marcucci. It was filled, the film was based on the life of rock promoter and manager Bob Marcucci. And the way Sharky reinvents Marcucci is is fascinating to see. If you haven't seen the film The Idolmaker Gang, uh, see if you can locate it uh, on a streaming service. It's a it's an amazing film about that period. Uh, with yeah, a, it really captures it. Absolutely, absolutely. And and Ray Sharkey, uh, another troubled individual, showbiz personality, who wound up passing of AIDS, uh, is just mm. is just in in his glory in this particular in this particular role. Um, yeah, and he uh, he won a Golden Globe for what was he nominated? He would know he won. I think uh, he was, he was won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical Comedy for that part in 1980. And deservedly so. I mean, it's a it's a it's a wonderful performance. Great uh, performance. So anyway, going back to my question, why Bobby Rydell? Well, when you consider, I, I have to gauge it by the records of the day, the artists of the day, and in some cases, in this particular case, the sound that helped create it. Bobby was signed by Cameo Parkway Records, which was the same label that gave us Chubby Checker and D.D. Sharp and a variety of other artists uh, with that Philadelphia heavy backbeat. and Great records, Cameo Parkway. Wonderful records. And it was on this label that Bobby was able to uh, launch hits like Kissin' Time, um, Swingin' School, Wild One, and of course... Volare. Yeah, so I think if I if I may kind of distill what I think you're saying is that Philadelphia and particularly Cameo Parkway became a focal point of interest for music of that time. And if you were associated with that label, you know, you had a better shot at national recognition coming out of that time time and place you know it's sort of like a, think of the film hairspray that that uh, you know in baltimore and that those that music from that time and that john waters so lovingly recreated i mean that was the power of the dance music coming out of, of philadelphia at absolutely. that time absolutely but i want to want to take it to the next step in terms of linking bobby rydell we're talking about performers who are still doing it. They're still doing it. They're still 
hitting the boards. They're still plying their wares after uh, living through horrendous uh, personal challenges. Yes, yes. Now, in Bobby Rydell's case, he's had organs replaced. What was his deal? Well, in 2012, he underwent a double organ transplant. Um, he needed uh, to replace his liver and a kidney. Jeez. And, and this is all the results of uh, of alcohol consuming his his life, and had wow. had been consuming his life for a very long period of time. Uh, and how old is he? So Bobby now must be closing in on in that same age group, but nineteen forty two. You'd think, but he's only seventy five. So he's, he's he's really in that he's in that median zone. As compared to a guy like Jay, who's about five years five years older, what is interesting as well is that uh, a piece of liver was given to him by a five year old African American uh, girl, and hmm. that is what attribute that is what is what it, we attribute his living today to this particular youngster and her donation wow. to him. And he now does many, many, many uh, benefits regarding uh, transplant surgery, liver foundation work, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a great tale, a tale that he shares in his book, Teen Idol on the Rocks, which is an interesting read. It, it is an interesting read. Forget him if he doesn't love you. Forget him if he doesn't care Don't let him tell you that he wants you Cause he can't give you love which isn't there Oh, little girl, he's never dreaming of you He'll break your heart, you wait and see He's able to go back and talk about his uh, his experiences with the Beatles all the way through just about every artist that we can imagine uh, that guys like you and I followed uh, all all the way through his career. Um, you know, we in in private we were talking about Bobby Darren, who is one of uh, my favorites and probably one of yours as well, but he's not included in this uh, in this podcast because. He unfortunately did not survive. Um, his his heart problem brought him down in his thirties. Uh, if he had been able to survive, uh, just think what he would have. He'd still be at it, and you know, and making great music. Um, these guys, um, Jay Black, Bobby Rydell, they are not progenitors of their own songs like our next man is um dion are we ready to go to dion you have more just one note on bobby um, darren we also we also have to understand that bobby darren had a screen career that proved his his weight as an actor 
Oh, yeah. He was on another level altogether. Altogether, because when we consider uh, recordings like Splish, Splash and then can take a look uh, at some of his screen work, stuff like Captain Newman, M.D., uh, this is... Th- this oh, was it Pressure Point? What was the film where he pr- played Pressure Point, right. He, play, he plays a Nazi in a film, Pressure Point. So Bobby was on an entirely different level as a musician, as someone who had insight uh, as to what would soon become popular. He understood the meaning of the folk movement. Uh, yeah. And he, he unfortunately suffered an early demise, but it's almost as if he lived an 80-year career in that short period of time. He was an old soul. Yeah, this is true. Well, they always said that he was in a hurry, yes. very driven. He, like, like the late Burt Russell Burns, who had, a heart, yeah. who had a heart murmur and was told that he would not live long, Burt Burns was in a rush to accomplish a great deal as a record producer and songwriter. Bobby Darren, I would think this is the same, uh, it's the same portrait someone who's running in order to get to a destination before the before time uh, runs out. Walden Robert Casoto, born in the Bronx, like our man Dion. Yes, yes. And let us move on to the great, the one, the only, Dion DiMucci. Dion DiMucci. And, and uh, you and I have been recently in a uh, bit of a... Um, debate. Uh, a debate yes. about... The, the value of a recent reissue called Kicking Child on Norton Records. You want to clue everybody in on that? Well, what we have in, well, we, this is an interesting development. To me, it's a fascinating development, and you, you got me hooked on this Kicking Time record, which I must have heard 15 times in its entirety already. <laughs> uh, because when things are kind of problematic for me. I'm looking for a way to solve it and put it into historical context. This recording was is, is being promoted. It was released on Norton Records, the label of the late, wonderful Billy Miller and his wife, Miriam. Uh, they've always specialized in, in weird, way-out rock and roll, and not just rare, but things that we never would hear, such as the great Joey Ross recording of Ooh Ooh, uh, <laughs> to where they release an album called the Joey Ross Memorial Album. Ooh, 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 ooh. When you get a good idea and you need someone to tell it to, just scratch your head and roll your eyes and simply say, Let's say, do you mind? Joey Ross, Tootie from the show Car 54, Where Are You? Working alongside another amazing actor to me, Fred Gwynn. 
played Herman Munster, but excelled in, in cameos in films like Ironweed. Uh, so here we have, here we have, here we have, let's just examine this record, which is being promoted as the tracks that influenced Bob Dylan's Tom Wilson sessions for bringing it all back home. Right. So that's where our, um, our, our uh, uh, just sort of deep dive uh, sort of took us. Yes, yes. Now you have you have a, a deep love for Dion. I have a wonderful appreciation. I don't think that I go as deep in my affection for him as as you do. So well, we did have Dion. Yeah, we did have Dion featured in our uh, Al Jolson episode. Absolutely. So I mean, we've uh, you know I, I've always felt like you. Uh, you did have a fondness. Oh, there's no doubt that my appreciation for him has has always been front and center. Uh, I always felt badly for him having to re with as many efforts to reinvent as he would would, would attempt. He always had to go back to the Dion Dion and the Belmonts persona in order to sell himself. something that someone like an issue Bobby Deckern didn't have because as someone on a multiple 
multiple level uh, entertainer, uh, he had other he had other choices he could make. But, but the one thing that the one thing that um, w was made clear by this reissue was Dion's uh, original inspiration to be a blues. He's a great guitar player. He you know he learned the he learned country music first, then he learned the blues, and he is a um, you know yes he he caught the doo wop wind, and that's what what made him famous and brought him to everyone's attention. It was hard living that down. But underneath the backbone, the spine, was always roots music. Always roots music. And uh, once he began kicking his heroin habit in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, these efforts finally paid off, and he found his salvation back with the church. Right. And so gospel became very, very important to him uh, once again uh, in, in a manner that it, it had, had never flourished within his career. Uh, but let's get back for one moment to this recording, Kick and Child. Yeah. Kick and Child produced by the great Tom Wilson. Tom Wilson, who recorded those first Dylan sides, Bring It All Back Home. We, you and I were, were, were talking about what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the Dion recordings come first? Did the Bob Dylan recordings come first? They were both produced by Tom Wilson. Yeah, and um, and the thing that I think that irked you was you felt like uh, Dion was trying to take credit for giving Dylan the idea. Um, and, and so that led you on a, uh, a research uh, dive and to try and find out, you were you were asking people who were there, and uh, why don't you? Uh, well, what, what I think, what I think, what my desire was was to be able to see if this was simply a promotional trick or not a promotional trick on um, the part of Norton. On the part of Norton, in order to sell records. So right. when you contact people who were around the situation and you discover that the there wasn't a lot of attention being paid in those circles to to what was going on in, in, in folk music. You couldn't avoid it, but it was not their bread and butter. So guys like Jay Black, Lou Christie, um, these these are guys who were pretty much unaffected by what happened, other than the realization that they had to also get hip and get with the times. But Dion had his ear to the ground, and he was he was looking to find a way to express his original, uh, you know, inspirations. But the the part of the story that made sense to me was what we hit upon which was the animals recording of house of the rising sun which predated all of these and house of the rising sun as everyone knows is is a folk song covered by every folk singer from joan baez on on down and the animals gave it a rocking you know version and perhaps it was the animals 
that started it all. And Tom Wilson was associated with, and he had, I don't know if he had recorded that album by the animals, but he did record shortly after animals albums. And, um, so it was all sort of in the same stew. And in reflecting upon this, realizing that I had seen the animals at the RKO theater in New York at a Murray the K show. No, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. This was a WMCA good guy show. WMCA was, this is the rock and roll station in New York, that in WABC. Um, the animals first time in America and they headlined on a bill with Del Shannon, the Chartbusters, Ronnie and the Daytonas, uh, Leslie Gore. This was a great, great show. And the animals come out and they put them in the first balcony. And Alan Price, I remember distinctly that organ sound carrying, yeah. ev carrying everything in that auditorium away so beautifully. So maybe it's Alan Price who needs to take credit. I think there's an Alan Price element here, but Burden's voice has always been, to me, one of the most unheralded uh, triumphs during our reign in pop music, meaning when the things that we appreciated were, were really relevant. Yeah, and, I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, um, it's interesting that Burden had a hard time going the other way into the more folk rocky uh, when he was doing Winds of Change and all that stuff. People had a hard time buying it. Um, so it's kind of interesting that if he was the progenitor of folk rock, that he couldn't actually uh, sell that, you know, once it, it hit. But you're incorrect in that he did. Because his, his participation in Monterey Pop, his being in that film and being selected to be in that film, and for Monterey, the song, to be a top ten record, he transitioned perfectly. Yeah. And songs like okay. songs like Winds of Change, uh, albums like Winds of Change, I remember purchasing, and the double LP set, Love Is, where he covers a variety of tunes, including a 10-minute version of Albert King's As the Years Go Passing By, showing... Well, that's the thing. I buy him more uh, in the blues area. Well, I also think that his, his version of Painted Black is so identifiable to me mm. that it, it also becomes an anthem uh, way beyond anything Mick Jagger and Keith Richards created. Well, you know, uh, you talk about cuts of the um, uh, Dion album being uh, feeling a little forced. I think San Francisco, San Francisco Nights has that quality as well. Did you remember feeling that way at the time of the release of San Francisco Nights? I, yeah, kind of, because I was well versed in, uh, you know, Eric Burden singing Don't Bring Me Down and, uh, you know, It's My Life and We Gotta Get Out of This Place. You know, and him trying to come all uh, warm and philosophical just seemed odd to me. Strobe lights beam, create streams, 
this kind of night Old child, young child, feel alright On a warm San Francisco night Angels sing Leather wings Jeans of blue Harley Davidson's too On a warm San Francisco night Old angel, young angel Feel alright On a warm San Francisco night I wasn't born there Perhaps I'll die there There's no place left to go San Francisco I saw it more of him being capable of aligning himself with a contemporary scene uh, that many artists had to force themselves to, to attempt. Um, well, there you go. So your own argument can be used against you in terms of kicking child. Yeah, but... You're, but you're professing that those burden records are inadequate. I'm not professing that. I'm professing that the kick and child tracks are def, are are not just inadequate in their depth to define what we're talking about being an archival discovery unmatched. If indeed Bob Dylan and Tom Wilson hear these tracks and Tom goes to Bob or Bob goes to Tom. That's what I'm looking to do. That's what I want to do. Then we have a historical complement that is unprecedented, unparalleled because of the impact that folk rock had on electrifying, literally, the entire scene. So well, I what- think if you look at the timeline, if you think if you look at the timeline, it wasn't that Dylan heard those tracks and said, that's what I want to do. I think it's... Um, they they had the House of the Rising Sun. They took Dylan tracks that he had already recorded acoustically and put bass and drums and you know keyboard and electric guitar on them as demos. He heard those and he was sold. Well, that might you know, Bill, that might very well be the case. It may very well be the case, but it does not detract from what my ears are are hearing as far as the definitive reasons for this being buried for such a long period of time. I also have to, I also have to wonder why in recorded interviews and why in any uh, attempts, any efforts to construct his career, this did not come up prior to his biography, his autobiography. And then, of course, now, with with this release
think that in order to ensure your career has legs and historical value as well, you'd want to point out, and Dion's never been shy, you would want to point out that that was something that you accomplished and let the discussion begin. Now the discussion happens 50 years later. And you you think that's like uh, a safe distance? Well, I think it is a safe distance because I'm wondering why in these Dion interviews in the 80s and 90s, there's not a mention of this and why there is not a Dylan historian. And I'm not talking about Dylanologists, garbologists like A.J. Weberman. I'm talking about these men and women who have devoted their lives to tracing this this beginning and this arc of Robert Zimmerman never put that together in any biographical or or uh, reference book. So uh, I'm just questioning the history. I'm not questioning the the potential efforts of influence or the true effects of influence. I'm suggesting that it may not have gone exactly the way that that it's being touted as having gone. And I'm well, still that, that's probably true. Um, but you did say you started off saying that repeated listenings have made you reevaluate the record. I reevaluate the record as the kind of demos that if you and I were engaging in at the time, we could be proud of those demos. I would not suggest for a moment that that was going to launch our major label career. Hmm. And you and you and I both know that those efforts have to be sealed with great songwriting, with, with and Dion never lacked the drive. He never lacked the ability. He never lacked the, as what Bob Dylan himself calls, the vocal genius. That's all was always there. It always will be there. The business is a very cruel, cruel monitor of our lives. And Dion could never get his legs out of the nostalgia bin, regardless of what efforts were made to redefine him. So when he realized he couldn't be redefined, he doubles down on the nostalgia and has releases like Yo Frankie. Now, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it was a, it's, but it's been a long, winding road, and he he made several uh, attempts through uh, when he was signed to Warner's and, you know, certainly Abraham, Martin and John, which was a, was a hit, but, you know, yes, when we saw him in Madison square garden in in the early seventies doing uh, his greatest hits with the Belmonts, that was probably, that probably sealed his fate forever. As it did when Roy Orbison committed to this to this exact same thing, and Ricky Nelson, Rick Nelson, tried to push back against it with a record called Garden Party. Right. So some of these artists were making a valiant effort to try to say, if this is all I'm bringing to the table, Ricky Nelson said, I'd rather be driving a truck. Yeah. Roy Orbison got out there, and he would sing Only the Lonely, and he'd sing Blue Bayou, and he would sing because he's grateful to be there and is so thrilled. And then the opportunities opened up for him because of Tom Petty and because of the adulation, the adulation. Del Shannon, the same thing. So the theme that aligns the three artists that we're highlighting and 
all the others we've mentioned, is the kind of light and dark of pop success. Absolutely. You, you become associated with, you know, it's the same thing for actors and sitcoms and things like that. You become associated with a product and you know, that's the way the public sees you no matter what, how you try to get out of it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a horror show. Once you submit and acquiesce, then you can come back to the fold like the prodigal and get paid again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's no, there are some artists who are able to navigate a path that extends their careers and their personal delight at the same time. I'm sure a lot of these, a lot of these cats would have loved to be recognized for other things as well. But the, the audience doesn't have that often that gracious uh, a memory. No, the public wants what they want. They want what they want. But, but I'm going to salute these three artists, Jay Black, Dion DiMucci, and Bobby Rydell, for soldiering on, still being with us, still, you know, taking joy from meeting their public and, and bringing happiness. And I am I concur one one million percent. And I just want to just want to go in reverse for one second and acknowledge that when we are looking at someone like Eric Burden, who d does not get the type of nods that are deserved, I think that it's time to start looking at the entire structure of rock and roll hierarchy, pop music hierarchy, and what's being sold. I don't know if you're looking, if you've seen this year's list of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. It's trying to fight that tide, and we're bringing everybody a little taste of these three, these three magnificent voices. And so, I think we've uh, done that. I think we do, we've done that very well. And I, I thank you so much for your, uh, for your experience, strength, hope, and expertise. This was an exciting, exciting conversation. This is this is the way uh, this is the way it should be. Well worth the wait. Yes, well, <laughs> well worth the wait. And we're going to hopefully make sure that the next one does not uh, d does not appear uh, three months later. So. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go home. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go home. I hate to leave you, but I really must say, oh, good night, sweetheart. Good night. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go home.